The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. About what to talk about this morning, I went back to what I had talked about at the last time I was here, and there was a question that came up at the end of that session, and I thought I would uh, address that question in this discussion today. Before I tell you what the question was, I want to kind of set a context about our practice, about meditation, about mindfulness. Um, now a lot of us come to meditation because we're looking for some kind of a respite, perhaps, some kind of a break from the busyness of our lives or the craziness of our lives. Certainly that's why I came to it. Um, and it was very helpful when I started. You know, I, I had a pretty crazy life and a lot of struggle, a lot of suffering. And I sat down and paid attention to my breath. And it's like, oh, thank goodness I can let go of all of that stuff for you know, 30 minutes while I sit here. And it just gave me this little island of a break in, the, in my day. So it's very helpful in that way. And then if we um, continue to practice and explore the mindfulness practice, we begin to see, um, we begin to understand and begin to recognize the way our own minds contribute to our struggles. So we begin to see that part of our trouble in life is that we want things to be different than they are. That we don't like some of the things the way they are. We want to fix them or change them. Or we do like things the way they are and we don't want them to change. And when they do change, we, we feel like we failed somehow. Or why me? Why do things have to why do good good things have to go away from me? And so we have this relationship with our experience of, basically, in the Buddhist perspective, uh, we have a, a relationship of wanting, of greed, for things we like, we want to hold on to. We have a relationship of aversion for things we don't like and we want to get rid of. And what's wrong with that? I mean, it's, it's a kind of pretty normal experience, pretty normal response to experience. And it's not particularly that there's anything really, you know, wrong or, you know, it's not, it's not that wrong is the word for that. But the, the, what the Buddha discovered is that it's that very movement of greed, of aversion, that cements us into this um, cycle of struggle that we find ourselves in. You know, we, we act on wanting, we act on that greed, we get something that we like, we have it for a while, and there's a good feeling that comes from that. A feeling that, yeah, I've got this thing. I figured it out. Maybe a little bit of a sense of control that, yeah, I can do this life. This is okay. And then when things change, it's like, wait a minute. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Well, let me see if I can get the next thing. And so we end up on a cycle of trying to get the next thing. Not really recognizing that the very movement to try to get the next thing is a part of our difficulty. And likewise with things we don't like, things we want to get rid of. That movement of pushing things away. The very pushing things away of, of, you know, of getting that thing out of my environment gives us a sense of control of I can do this I can figure out how to make my environment be the way I'd like it to be and yet we can't ultimately control our environment and so we suffer, we struggle when things don't go the way we'd like them to go so the uh, this movement of wanting of greed and aversion you know we we don't necessarily start to think of that or look at that as being an issue until we begin to actually recognize how it works in our mind. And we begin to see actually, you know, it's the very springing up of that wanting. 
whether it's wanting to have something or wanting to get rid of something, that very springing up of that wanting creates the sense of lack, creates the sense of something's being wrong, something's being off. If that wanting goes away, that sense of lack goes away. That sense of things not being right goes away. So this is one of the things the Buddha really pointed to. He said it's the very movement of greed and aversion that creates that sense of something's off. Something needs to be changed or fixed. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to change or fix things in our environment. It's more uh, what I'm pointing to here and what I think the Buddha pointed to is that there's a movement of greed and aversion that has a kind of a needy quality to it, a feeling that it's not okay that I don't have this thing. It's not okay that this thing is in my environment. That there is a demand that in order for happiness to be present, I either have to have that thing or get rid of that other thing. That happiness cannot be present unless I fix that thing, change that thing, have that thing. And this is, the, this is a, another piece. This is a delusion, essentially. This is a piece, this is the, the key piece that I want to talk about today, is delusion. The Buddha also talked about, now it's not only greed and aversion that operate in our minds that lead us to struggle, it's delusion, it's confusion. And the delusion of greed is that I have to have this thing. The delusion of aversion is that I have to get rid of that thing in order for happiness to be here. So it's not that we don't necessarily try to make change in our environment, but if, if that movement to change is coming out of it's not okay to have that thing in my environment, then suffering, struggle, dissatisfaction will follow if we're not able to control our environment in the way that we'd like to. So the movement towards change in our world can come from a more wholesome wish, a wish for compassion, uh, a wish for kindness, a wish for generosity, that those can also be motivations for our actions. So this, this question of greed and aversion is something that it's kind of, it's, it's a little bit easier for us to see uh, in our minds that this kind of, kind of tips us off balance, this continual wanting to have things, wanting to get rid of things, and our relationship to the either having or the uh, wanting to push away. We can see, we can begin to see as we practice in meditation how our minds do that. You know, even just in the simple practice of sitting here. You know, we're sitting here, we decide I want to sit down and meditate and instead there's all these sounds outside or something and it's like the mind keeps getting pulled out to that and the idea is, well, I want to sit here and pay attention to my breath and that's not possible because my mind is being pulled out to sounds instead. And we think that might be a problem. So we struggle. We get frustrated. We feel like, why do I even try to do this? And it's simply an idea in our minds that we have to stay with our breath. With mindfulness practice in particular, you know, as I guided in the meditation, we can bring our attention to sounds, we can bring our attention to other body sensations, to emotions, to moods. Whatever is arising can be what we settle our attention on. And so the, this notion of having some idea about what the meditation should be, that's a kind of a greed. The idea that sounds shouldn't be present or other body sensations shouldn't be present when I'm meditating, that's a kind of aversion. And we end up frustrated, struggling, suffering. You know, not a major suffering, but a little bit of irritation or frustration happens. And that's a form of kind of imbalance in our minds, created by our minds, entirely created by our minds, this sense of imbalance. 
So greed and aversion are relatively easy to get a handle on and to begin to see as we begin to observe greed, wanting, happening in our experience. We begin to feel the way it pulls us off. We begin to see the the feeling of lack that it generates just in its very very arising. The feeling of, oh, something's wrong, I want that. Or something's wrong, I want to get rid of that. So we begin to see how greed and aversion kind of contribute to this messiness of our lives. The other key piece that the Buddha pointed to besides greed and aversion is contributing to the messiness of our lives is delusion. And this one is um, a little more hard to see. I mean, just by its very nature, right? I mean, delusion is... uh, Delusion is delusion. We don't necessarily see delusion. And so this is, the, this is the, the question that sometimes comes up. And one of the questions that came up a few weeks ago was, how do we recognize delusion? How do we explore delusion in our experience? What is delusion? And how does it contribute to this feeling of the messiness, the, you know, the, the confusion, the struggle of our lives? So delusion, there's so many different things to say about delusion, so I'm going to cover it from a lot of different perspectives here. First of all, delusion itself can come out of greed and aversion. You know, that uh, when greed is present, it creates a kind of filter on our minds. And it's like we're looking through the world through that filter. And we begin to um, see our experience from that perspective of wanting or from aversion. I have so much more examples in aversion in my experience because I've got a very strong orientation towards aversion in my my history. So I got to have an example of that. So for instance, I was experiencing aversion on one retreat when I was doing walking meditation. And... Um, there were so many people in the room and I like to do walking meditation with a little more space and so there was aversion happening in the mind. And what I noticed is that the uh, attention was getting, you know, landing on things and then criticizing them. You know, I I saw somebody's shoes at the end of the walking path and started, you know, berating the person that put them at the end of the walking path. You know, it's like... Those shoes were pretty neutral experience. They're just shoes sitting at the end of the path. But my mind, being in that field of aversion already, had that filter of aversion. And things that my mind landed on became unpleasant, became something to get rid of or something that was a problem. If I had been in a state of desire instead of aversion, I might have looked at those shoes and said, wow, those are really cool shoes. Look at that. Wow, I'd like shoes like that. So that's a kind of delusion that gets put into play because that filter is on our minds. You know, the, 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 the delusion is kind of that this is the way things are. You know, we believe our, the perspective that we're seeing things from. So greed and aversion themselves can create kind of filters that we're seeing through, and that filter not being, you know, is is kind of obscuring or or obstructing things as they actually are. The neutrality of shoes was not my experience in that case. So delusion can arise out of greed and aversion. But delusion is actually more fundamental than greed and aversion. Actually, if delusion didn't exist, greed and aversion wouldn't happen. We didn't have delusion operating in our minds already. Greed and aversion wouldn't happen. And I'll come back to that. I'll come back to that later. So what I'd like to try to do today is to offer you some information, some examples about how delusion functions in our experience. So that 
you might begin to be able to recognize, oh, this is delusion. So that we can see, we can actually recognize, oh, there's this filter happening here. There's, there's some, you know, I'm not seeing things clearly right now. We may not be able to let go of our deluded filter in that moment, but at least we might be able to recognize, oh, I'm not seeing things clearly right now. And that's helpful for us. It can help us to, you know, that time when I was seeing that I was operating from an aversive perspective, you know, that kind of thing can happen in our, at our work, for instance. If we see that we're in a work situation and that we've got this filter of aversion going, you know, oh, I'm not seeing things clearly, then I may not be able to, to pick up on or read all of the other information in the, in the room from a clear perspective. There may be some delusion happening here. So I'd like to cover delusion from three different perspectives. One being the the kind of um, uncertainty, not knowing. This is what we might normally think of as delusion, being unclear, being confused, that kind of thing. Then another one um, where perhaps the mind is more present, clear. It's not that we're spaced out or disconnected, but more that we have these filters operating, these ideas, agendas, beliefs, views, concepts functioning. And we're seeing through concept or agenda or belief rather than really meeting what's actually there. And then the third aspect I'd like to talk about is some more fundamental distortions that um, weave through pretty much all aspects of our experience. So delusion does kind of penetrate our experience to to very deep levels. So I'm going to start with the most obvious kind, which is the kind where we're kind of disconnected, spaced out. We might be kind of lost in thought, lost in um, a world of ideas or fantasy, not really meeting experience here. This is a very familiar place for us. I mean, we, we do this a lot. We, we space out, we get dull or dreamy. Or when This happens in our meditation. It happens in our daily life. It happens when we're driving. I mean, how many, how many, how many of you have, you know, arrived at your destination and then realized you didn't remember the drive? You know, that's a form of kind of disconnection, of, of delusion, of spacing out, of not being present. There's a, uh, one of Shakespeare's plays, The Tempest, that uh, I saw. There's a, a version of it that's on the, um, a movie now. It's a, a beautiful version. Um, and while I saw that, I saw it uh, as a video, I heard some little quotes in the, in the play that said, that's like, that's delusion. That's describing delusion really clearly. So I, I had a copy of the play and I went and found those quotes. And this, this quote from The Tempest describes this kind of spaced out quality. This living, acting, doing, while we're just in some other place. And this two characters are watching another character in the play who's engaged in a massive battle with creatures that are only in his mind. So he's, you know, fighting and struggling with all of these creatures, but they're looking at him struggling with the air. And one character says, this is a strange repose to be asleep with eyes wide open Standing, speaking, moving, and yet so fast asleep. We do this. We, we do this in our lives. So we can begin to recognize this. It's, it's hard to recognize that state when we're completely lost in it. You know, it's not, it's, it, there's not much we can do about that. Mindfulness isn't there. 
We're, we're lost in that place. We're believing that world, in a sense. A time when we can begin to get a flavor of that state of mind is when we remember that we've been lost in thought. This happens to us over and over again. In sitting meditation, it happens to us a lot. It happens to us all the time during our daily lives. We wake up realizing, wow, you know, here I am driving down the freeway and I didn't remember where I was. In that moment when we recognize or remember, we're coming out of that bubble of unreality. In that moment, there's a kind of a, a memory, a lingering sense of what it was like to be in that state just a few moments before. Haziness, caught. There's just this sense of what the mind state was like in that place. So that moment when we remember, the moment when mindfulness comes back, that's a good place to check in. What is it like to be present now? And do I have a sense of what it was like a moment ago to be lost in thought? As we get familiar with that spacey feeling, we can begin to, the familiarity with that feeling begins to allow mindfulness to begin to penetrate it a little bit. And so we actually can begin to watch the mind go into a spaced-out state, watch the mind go into that place of moving into a dream or a fantasy or just simply dullness, spacing out. I noticed this one morning, having breakfast. I kept watching, or I kept waking up, seeing that I was kind of just in this zoned-out zzzzed space. You know, the mind felt like, it actually felt like it was up here somewhere. You know, the mind just like left the body and hung out up here somewhere. And I, I got curious about this. And when I would wake up, I tried to bring my mind back to the breakfast. Oh, breakfast is what I'm doing. Pay attention to breakfast. But it kept doing that. It kept, it kept going out. And I began to get... I, in the waking up into it, I got a little bit of a flavor of that, and I began to actually recognize or begin to see that I could watch the mind go into that spaced-out place. I could be present for it going into that spaced-out place. So that there was no longer... It wasn't any longer obscuring what was happening. It became what the mind was aware of happening. But this is, this is a funny thing about mindfulness and these states. I mean, we think what mindfulness is supposed to do is, is get rid of these states. But instead, what mindfulness begins to do is to allow us to actually experience these states. The state of the mind being in thought or the mind being in a space of dullness or sleepiness or spacing out. And what I saw as I watched the mind do that, I watched the mind go into spacing out, hung out there. It was pleasant in that place. It felt actually very restful to be in that place. And then that cleared within a few moments. The mind was back in a more normal state of meeting what I was doing. Then it happened again. I noticed it. It cleared. And then it stopped. You know, it's like... And what I recognized in that was that the mind actually needed some rest. That that place of the mind going into that space and checking out like that was a manifestation of the mind actually needing to relax and rest. And when I allowed it to do that, it completed that process and was available again. So this, you know, this, sometimes our mind goes into these states for a purpose. You know, it's, it, it's not just, it's not just that our mind goes into these states to, to uh, avoid things or um, to 
operate on greed, you know, fantasy or whatever. Sometimes we do. Sometimes our mind goes into that kind of a state because we don't like what's happening here, so let me create a fantasy. Go into something pleasant. But sometimes it serves another purpose. So this becoming aware of what these states are like begins to allow us to to be uh, begins to allow mindfulness to actually penetrate some of these states, some of these checked out dull states. We can actually know what it's like to be sleepy. We can know what it's like for the mind to be restless and agitated, unable to connect to particular experience. We can know what it's like to be spaced out. And in that recognition, we can also uh, begin to recognize when it's skillful to allow that state and when it's not so helpful. You know, it's actually not so helpful to be in that state when we're driving. You know, so if you wake up noticing that state on the freeway, maybe helpful to, to, to recognize, okay, let me add a little bit of effort here to staying present. I was eating breakfast when I did that exercise of allowing the mind to go into that state. I wouldn't do that on the freeway. So that's the first kind of delusion, a delusion that is um, that disconnected kind of business, not aware of what's happening. The second kind of delusion is a delusion based in views, ideas, concepts, agendas. They're kind of so what we might call personal delusions. They're Delusions based on ideas that we have about our lives, about our reality, that come from our personal conditioning, that come from you know, how we were raised and where we lived, who our parents were, all of those things. So this is you know, kind of related to what I was saying before, that we you know, might have a, a view, a filter, of aversion on our experience. And that seeing, seeing things through that filter, we might not recognize the filter. So this part of delusion based in views, agendas, concepts, is related to having filters on. Now these filters may or may not be related to greed or aversion. They may simply be you know, related to what we were taught as children. So a simple example that just popped into my mind. Uh, I've used this one before, but uh, when I was a kid, I uh, was short, very short, and I had bad eyesight, still have bad eyesight. And before I got glasses, I think the teachers recognized I couldn't see the blackboard very well. And so they always put me in the front row, in the classroom. So, you know, that's where I went, that's where I sat. And... As I grew up and I got glasses and got a little taller, I still sat in the front row. Wasn't anybody putting me there? I just did that. That's what I did. I sat in the front row. I created some stories about it, like I sit in the front row because I'm so interested, or I sit in the front row because I'm such a good student, something like that. But, you know, looking back at it, you know, I really, I think I sat in the front row because that's where they put me in kindergarten, first, and second grade. That's where I got comfortable. So there wasn't particularly greed or aversion around that action, but it was a filter. It was an idea, a sense of who I was that had been created based on conditions that I acted on. Completely unaware at the time that it was simply a result of conditions. I attributed it to being something about me, who I was. So that's a form of delusion. You know, that, that uh, it was a view, a little bit of a view, that an idea of who I was. So there's so many different examples of this kind of delusion. I'll give you a few. There's one. um, If we have an agenda 
in our minds, something that we're, we're planning on doing, something we are kind of orienting to. With that agenda, often, you know, because our mind begins to move in that direction, our mind um, is kind of oriented towards accomplishing that task or that goal. It's like we um, screen in certain information and screen out other information. So I noticed this um, when I was, I had an infestation of Bermuda grass in my garden. And I, you know, started, at first it was really hard to see the Bermuda grass. It's hard to pick it out, and I had to kind of really look for it. I was pulling the Bermuda grass. And after a few days of this, pulling the Bermuda grass, I began to um, see that the mind was picking it out very easily. I just had to scan my eyes across the lawn, and there it was. It was popping into vision. The, the filter in my mind had gotten attuned to Bermuda grass. I even, when I closed my eyes at night, I saw Bermuda grass. It was, it was so, you know, it was like that was the filter. That was the pattern my mind w- wanted to recognize was Bermuda grass. When that kind of thing happens, it's also surprising um, that we see the thing that we're looking for and we don't see things that we're not looking for. This is... Um, This is actually part of the delusive nature of this process in our minds, that we believe that our eyes, our senses are functioning as just like pure receptors. They're taking in everything that's happening. And we see something, we believe that if we were there, if something happened, we, we would see it or we would experience it. Another example, um, when I was a kid, I um, got very focused when I was reading. So I would sit there reading my book, agenda on reading the book, and my father would come and tell me dinner was ready. And he would stand at the base of the stairs and say, dinner's ready, and I would not hear him. He would yell a little louder, I still would not hear him. He would come up more in front of me. I didn't even see him. He actually had to touch me before I recognized that he was trying to say something to me. I was so absorbed in my book. So this is an example of having the agenda of reading, screening out other information. Now, this actually happens to us more than we recognize. It's, there's actually a well, well, some well-documented research that shows if we have an agenda, we will miss information that's not associated with that agenda. And we will, and the other part of that, I, I, don't, want, I don't want to tell that research, it'll take me too much time, but the, the part of that that's kind of scary or, or kind of uh, gives one pause is that in that research, people, when they were pointed out, this is the information you missed, they were watching a video, you know, having an agenda, watching a video, and there was... With that agenda, something else happening in the video that they missed, and when they were shown the the, chain, the the video, they believed that it was a different video, that it could not possibly be the same video, because they would have noticed that thing. This is real. This is really the delusion of this aspect, that when we have an agenda, our senses do not function in that completely like a uh, receptive way, just taking in all information. There are things we completely miss. And this happens all the time. So you're just, just being aware of the possibility, especially when an agenda is strong, that you may be not seeing, 
hearing, sensing everything that's happening. We also have views about ourselves, who we are, what we do. We notice when others have views about who we are and what we do and they don't kind of agree with with, uh, what our own personal view of who we are and what we do is. You know, people say, well, you're the kind of person that's X. And it's like, well, sometimes that's the kind of person I am, but that's not me. We do this to ourselves as well. We do it to other people. We do it to ourselves. Like, my, like me, walking into that classroom, putting myself in the front seat. I am the kind of person that sits in the front of the room. I was conditioned to, to do that, to limit myself to being that kind of person, you know, is, it, it is limiting. And that's a simple, silly example. But we do this to ourselves. We believe we're capable of certain things, not capable of other things. So this is a kind of delusion. Again, you know, so kind of recognizing, if you, if you hear yourself saying something like, well, I'm the kind of person who, or this is who I am, you know, question that. Question it. Or I'm the kind of, I, I can't do that. I, I'm not capable of that. Question that. Where does that belief come from? What is it about? Another way this functions, um, views can be created based on incomplete information. Views can be created when we... Um, meet something and get a little bit of information and we believe we know something about a situation or a thing. Well, classic, the classic example on this is the story of the blind people and the elephant. That the um, blind people were shown an elephant. Some were you know, shown or asked to touch certain parts of the elephant, the legs or the side of the elephant or the ear or the tail. And each one formed a view about what the elephant was based on what part they had been shown. And when asked, what's the elephant like? The story goes that they each said, said you know, well, an elephant is, for instance, like a post, those that shown the legs. Or the elephant is like the wall of a storeroom, those that were shown the side of the elephant. Or the elephant is like a broom, those that shown the tail. And, you know, it's not so wrong to say a part of the elephant is like a post or a part of the elephant is like a wall. But what happened is that, that in the story at least, and it's a teaching story, so the um, people came to blows over their views. You know, the elephant is like this. You're wrong. The elephant is not like a broom. The elephant is like a post. I'm right. You're wrong. So this is another of the danger of views and the delusion that happens, that we um, believe our perspective without necessarily recognizing maybe we don't have the whole picture. And then the last piece I'll bring in around this particular kind of delusion is... That we, you know, we relate to our experience. And this is a very normal thing. It's a part of the way our mind works. We relate to our experience through concepts. So I come into this room and I pretty much relate to this room in terms of concepts. I relate to it in terms of men and women sitting here, the space, there's the the things in this room are, you know, I, I relate to it through my impression of what's in the room. So, you know, the, the mind creates concepts very easily. It's a very normal, natural thing for our minds to do. And it's not a problem. In fact, it's very useful. If we didn't have concepts, if I had to come in here every time and figure out this is what a man is, This is what a chair is. This is what the floor is. This is what a window is. This is what a woman is. If I had to do that every time I walked into a room, 
it would take a long time to navigate the world. So it's very useful that the mind uses concepts in this way. But what happens is that we, you know, so that the mind use, creates the concepts and it attaches all kinds of opinions, ideas, views, thoughts to those concepts and then sees the world through those concepts associated with all of those views, all of those opinions. So this, it's not so, it's not so much a problem that the mind creates concepts, but we believe our concepts, we believe what happens in our mind, the creation of those concepts. We believe them to be reflections or, or we believe them to be reality. You know, when I see somebody standing in front of me, there's, there's the person in front of me and there's my view of the person in front of me. If I'm relating to that person through that view without recognizing it's a view, that's a form of delusion. So it's not, it's not that we have to get rid of concepts to get rid of the delusion, but we need to recognize, I mean, part of the delusion is, a part of the way delusion works is it kind of, it obscures the fact that concepts are simply concepts. We believe our concepts to be reality. That could be a whole, a whole talk in and of itself. Now, this becomes more clear to us when our process of concept-making makes a mistake. So we see something and then recognize it as something. You know, the classic here is you know, seeing a, a rope coiled in a corner and believing it's a snake. You know, so there's that. The concept is that it's a snake. And we are relating to that concept or relating to that concept as reality and reacting to it. You know, we may... Um, uh, of course, we may become frightened. So, but there's, there's not a snake there, there's a rope. So this kind of uh, delusion of believing our concepts to be reality. Let's see. I'm thinking... There's only about nine minutes left. I want to leave a little bit of time for any questions. So I think what I'll do is I'll hold off on the last part, which is the, the more um, uh, fundamental kinds of delusion, and maybe talk about that next week and just see if there's any, any comments or any questions uh, now. Yeah. Yeah, all you need to do is... Uh, Turn on the light. Turn on the switch. Hi, I'm Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Um, this is a great uh, Dharma talk for me to be at today. I, I've been uh, walking around deluded for the last couple months. Uh, <laughs> um, in a short span of time, um, I had uh, unexpected knee surgery, and then the next week my father died, and then... Um, there, and then about another week after that, I was told that my daughter was having a bunch of challenges at school. So my delusion became, initially, I was telling myself, I can't take one more thing. Yes. I cannot <laughs> handle the stress. So I became very, I was putting up a lot of resistance. Um, and then the delusion also increased by then just everything. It just seemed like, Everything seems stressful. The yes. Things. So that filter. That filter was in came there. in. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then, and I, and I just could not see anything good about anything that was happening. And then when I started being mindful, I, I could see that, you know, having the knee surgery, maybe it wasn't you know, divine timing for me, but it was also an opportunity for me to slow down and to be quiet and have the time to grieve my father's death. And to learn to ask for help mm-hmm. and 
to have the space to do some things where my normally crazy busy life, being a midlife mom, wouldn't. Um, but I was still um, not being in reality with a lot of things that I was feeling because it seemed like there was overload. Yeah. So some depression arose, mm-hmm. and then I started judging the depression and created suffering. And um, so it's been really helpful to see where that came from. A lot of filtering and a lot of uh, you know my my history and how I was taught that you don't cry, you don't share feelings. Yeah. yeah. So it's been a real experience the last couple of months learning that. Maybe I need to question that. Yeah, I mean the the you described it very well the the way you saw, and so now you see that there was delusion in there as well, oh, yeah. and it may not have been so obvious to you at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that that um, you know that statement. I mean, it's it, it's so it's so interesting when our mind does that. I just can't take right. another moment of this, right. and it's like. But I am. Look again. Here I am taking another moment. I would say that frequently. I cannot take one more thing. I'm on my last nerve. <laughs> and yet, and it would become from the whole looking into the past. Yes. Or looking, or, or, and not, I don't know what's next for certain things for my daughter, for my money, et cetera. But then I, if I said, well, but I am. I, I am handling it. I'm here. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm doing what I can in the moment. And... And that's an, myself. that's another way that delusion functions is that um, you know that projecting into the future essentially right. and believing the reality that it creates right in in the moment that it creates right. it and, and that is a is a great way that overload happens also I see that I just got home from um, the month away and I came home and you know walking into my house it's like the mind immediately saw that needs to be done that needs to be done that needs to be done that it's like whew, it was like this this cascade of things that need to be done and there was a moment where the mind almost believed I mean kind of what, what the mind believes in that moment is this all has to happen now and it's overwhelming well it is overwhelming if it all has to happen in a moment but it will happen in its time and so that you know, that I saw that. I saw that tendency. And it's like, okay, you know, I just do this thing. I just do this, mm-hmm. this thing. And so that, that kind of, you know, that was a moment of kind of seeing that delusion of how the projection of the future is picked up in, in the now. And finally, my daughter's on a field trip today to Palo Alto Baylands. I would, I normally, as my friend here knows, I am normally someone that I would be on the field trip with my daughter and, you know, going on the field trips I do, I've done in the past lots of of volunteering. That's not feasible at this time. But I I really had some struggle last night letting that go and making a decision, no. I I mean, it's just not possible. You know, I'm not, that's not who I am. Yes, yeah. I'm someone right now that's dealing with something else. And, And you can even take the I'm someone who out of it. It's just like... This is the condition right now. You know, it doesn't have to be, oh, I'm incapable of this right now. It's like, well, this is not the conditions right now. So that's, that's the, you know, the, the other piece that I haven't gone into was the, the more fundamental delusions, um, you know, the believing, the believing that I am someone or, I, I, you know, this is who I am, the, the kind of believing in permanence. Uh, that things are permanent, the believing in um, that there is happiness to be found out there somewhere, if only I knew how to find it. <laughs> if only, if only I knew how to create my world. So those are the more fundamental kinds of... Those are also filters, but they're more human filters. We each have our own personal filters that we put onto the world, like the ones you were describing, you know, oh, I can't do this, or I'm the kind of person who would be with her daughter at the Baylands. Those are our own personal filters. And then there are these ones that it's like, I am, I need, you know, the, the kind of more, the, the more core kinds of ones that, um, that function in our, in our lives. So the, those underlie, those actually underlie all the others. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, Dion. Yeah, for one more, maybe. Yeah. So I had such a realization that's been so helpful to me um, that I had the concept that if someone cut me off in traffic or did something that 
um, you know, was dangerous or, or slowed me down or something, I would take it so personally. It's like, you know, why did he cut me off? <laughs> why would they do that to me? <laughs> and then one day I realized it is absolutely, there's nothing personal about this at all. They, they don't know who you are. <laughs> they're not trying to do anything other than get to where they're trying to go, you know? And once I realized that, it was so liberating. I am so much more relaxed <laughs> when I drive, and I don't get upset anymore. I don't take it personally, and it's just um, it's just brought me a lot of liberation as I'm driving. That's great. I mean, that is that's that that, that actually that kind of recognition. Anytime you feel like you're taking something personally, this is an exploration. You know, we take things personally in more obvious and less obvious ways. So, you know, just any time you find you're taking something personally, you know, look into that. I mean, for instance, and, you know, it's a, it's a kind of silly example, not silly, but um, an example, you know, somebody, you know, while you're talking to them, makes a face. Um, you know, all kinds of ideas might come up about that. That person doesn't like me. That person thinks X, Y, or Z, or that, or maybe judgments about them. You know, that person is is you know stupid, or that person's rude, or you know whatever. You know, so we 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 come up with these these views around it, and um, you know, so that's essentially taking it personally that this person has made a face. Now, maybe it's that they just had some gas or something, you know, maybe that's what the face was about. Maybe the face actually is about the fact that they don't like you. And is that, you know, th- that's an interesting place to explore, you know, what, what's the, how are we caught around the fact that there's, you know, somebody in the, the world that has an opinion that they don't like us? You know, do we suffer over that? Do we uh, think it's a problem? Do we think we have to change them somehow or change ourselves somehow to make them like us? So that's, you know, that's a kind of a, uh, another um, place where we're taking it personally and you know, we find out, well, actually they don't like me. Do we continue to take it personally? You know, that, that's, another, that's a deeper level of exploring that. You know, when there actually is somebody, somebody out there where there's this, there is a, a kind of a, um, you know, a, a conflict there. Do we take that conflict personally? So always helpful to explore that. You know, how am I contributing to my suffering around the fact that somebody doesn't like me? You know, there, there is perhaps the, the fact that there's somebody out there that doesn't like me. Do I suffer over that or not? The, the, whether I suffer over that is entirely up to this mind and body. So that's, that's another, that's kind of deeper exploration of that, that, taking it personally. Like in this case, you know, they're not, it's not about you. Well, what, it, what, it, what happens when it is about you? <laughs> you know, that's, a, that's a, a harder place to explore. But again, very valid uh, exploration. So now we need to stop. So thank you. Thank you.